Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, how are you this Monday, November 14th? Did you have some fun over the weekend? Did you kick back and congratulate yourself on a job well done? Great news got confirmed over the weekend. We don't have to sweat it in Georgia. Democrats hold 50 seats already in the U.S. Senate to the Republicans, 49. Even if by some strange reasoning, they were able to take Georgia, we'd still be 50-50. And with Kamala Harris as a tiebreaker, that gives Dems the edge. Pressure's off. And here is what I think is really interesting about the fact that the pressure is off this Georgian race. I think, as does uh, Tom Hartman, that there were a lot of white Republicans in Georgia who could not bring themselves to vote for Herschel Walker. Remember, Brian Kemp got 3% more Republican votes than Herschel Walker did. And the thinking is that a lot of those probably, possibly white Republican voters who couldn't bring themselves to vote for Herschel Walker, they either voted for the libertarian candidate or they simply didn't vote for the Senate race at all, at all. The fear was that some of those white Republicans in Georgia, that if they felt that control of the Senate was at stake and that they could potentially give that control to the Republicans, Mitch McConnell or whomever was Rick Scott, whomever their choice was going to be, that they might just hold their nose, come back out in large numbers and vote for Herschel Walker. It was a it was a very scary possibility. But now there's no reason for those Republicans who don't like Herschel Walker to even make the effort. The balance of the Senate has been decided. The pressure is off. The pressure is off. So here's my prediction. Yes, I do think that the Republican Party is going to do their darndest. At least they're going to go through the motions of getting Herschel Walker as many votes as they can get for him. But I don't think it's going to happen. Unless the Democrats in Georgia get complacent and decide to stay home, which I can't. Can't imagine with the way things are going in Georgia will happen. I think that Raphael Warnock is going to run away with this runoff election. Runaway being relative. You know, these days, you know, we look at states where it takes weeks to count the ballots and then somebody wins by 20,000 votes. I think the margins are going to be greater than that because I think that the Republicans who can't stand Herschel Walker but who might, might have come out if it meant voting him in, gave Mitch McConnell the power over the Senate. They don't have any reason to come out. 
They have no reason to come out. So if you think Herschel Walker was quite possibly the worst candidate you've ever seen fielded for high office in your lifetime and you didn't want to vote for him, you don't have to feel any pressure, any party loyalty to come out and vote for him on December 6th. By the way, early voting in Georgia starts November 28th. Uh, Election day for this runoff election is December 6th. Because I know you keep a calendar of these things, don't you? Okay, got those two dates? So December 6th, we will be keeping an eye on things in Georgia. I don't know if... um, I know that there's early voting, but I, I think that you have to vote in person for this. There's certainly no time to print and get out mail-in ballots and collect them, it would seem. So hopefully, by um, if it's really a landslide for Warnock, we, we should know the night of December 6th. But hopefully we'll know, at the very least, by December 7th, that uh, we have indeed increased democratic possession of the u.s senate and if even if i don't think that republicans are going to take the house and i'll explain about that in a minute but even if they did with a excruciatingly small edge we have control of the senate we have control of judges if something happens in the next two years If um, somebody on the Supreme Court decides to retire or dies unexpectedly, Joe Biden does not have to compromise in choice of who is going to be on the Supreme Court. We have the votes. We have the votes. Because that's one of the things that both Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell were hinting around at, is that um, if indeed there was an opening on the Supreme Court, that they were going to make Biden negotiate with them. They were going to make sure he picked a more moderate selection, something, someone palatable to them, (laughs) which is pretty ironic because back when Obama had an open seat, Merrick Garland was a name suggested by the Republican Party. One of the uh, senators I believe it was Orrin Hatch said, well, you know, if we're, if Obama were going to no- nominate somebody we like, like Merrick Garland, we'd probably fill the seat. But and so Obama did nominate Merrick Garland and Mitch McConnell stepped in and said, oh, we, I'm sorry, we're having an election a year from now. We can't fill the seat. And because he had the votes, he had the power to do that. That will not happen in the next two years of the Biden administration. We've got a open seat on that court. We are going to fill it. Oh, get your uh, calendars back out again. A couple of dates. Uh, tomorrow, the uh, veto session starts in Springfield. So it'll be interesting to see if we get some legislation. I know that there are more measures to protect a woman's reproductive rights. And uh, there are, I believe, some gun registration measures that are potentially going to be discussed and voted on. I think it's a short session. It's only three or four days, but it starts tomorrow. And what else might happen tomorrow? 
By all accounts, even though his advisors have been begging him not to, by all accounts, Donald Trump tomorrow night is going to announce that he is indeed a candidate that he wants to run. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, Charlie Sykes was interviewed on the uh, 11th hour on Friday, and he said what I think to be true. First of all, in case you've been watching his social media, Donald Trump is blaming the poor showing for Republicans in the midterm elections. He's blaming that on Mitch McConnell. He's trying to change the narrative here. He's blaming that on Mitch McConnell. Yep, it's Mitch's fault. We didn't do better in the midterms. And here's what happened before. Remember when he first threw his hat in the ring to be a Republican nominee for president? Everybody in the establishment was like, no way, never. We will never support this guy. This guy's a bad man. He's incapable of winning. He's not like anything. He's not a real politician. He's a joke. Yada, yada, yada. And in the primaries, one by one, the other Republicans fell away. And they were left with Donald. And to everyone's shock and surprise, Donald won. And since that time, they have been afraid of him. They have been afraid to oppose him because when you oppose him in any way, shape or form, I'm not even talking about the Kinzingers and the Cheneys of the world who've literally been excommunicated from their parties for opposing Donald Trump publicly. You know, even somebody like um, people who he's endorsed before. Lately, he's been kind of poking at Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, who some people see as another success of the post-Trump era, potentially. I mean, he's been savaging Ron DeSantis, but he has also started poking at Glenn Youngkin. You know, it's the same story. I helped him get elected. Now he doesn't really remember me. The bottom line here is Donald Trump saw that when he could get people excited, we can, when he, if he can get his base excited, if he can show that people still love him, all the Republicans who are now saying, oh, they're turning the page, it's now it's going to be Ron DeSantis and these others, they will do what they have done since 2016. They will shut up and they will fall into line. They will be afraid as they were afraid before. Donald Trump has smelled their weakness. They didn't band together. They didn't stand up against him. They didn't want to take the short-term pain. So now they have this long-term disarray. But he knows they will cave. If he can get people excited again, if he can start stirring up the crowds again, All these people who are saying the Trump era is over, yeah, watch them. Watch them one by one fall into line. Now, that's what Donald Trump is counting on. And you know what? I think he's right. The Republicans who are in office and want to be in office have proven themselves to be weak and cowardly. You know, they think that with this... um, defeat that they've experienced in the midterm elections, 
they think that somehow this is this is their excuse to repudiate Donald Trump. It might be. It might be. But if he gets back to swaggering form again, watch them. Watch them one by one. First, they'll stop talking about him altogether. And then when they do talk about him, it'll be neutral. And then the step after that is they're back on the Trump bandwagon. And oh, by the way, the House has not yet been decided. It has not yet been decided. I still think that we have a chance to pull this out. I absolutely do. I absolutely do. I think we have a chance to pull this out. There is a gentleman by the name of Christopher Boozy. He has this company called Bot Sentinel where he's a coder. And you can use this um, Bot Sentinel software to figure out, especially on like Twitter or social media, who's real, who's fake, that kind of stuff. But as a sideline, he dabbles in election prediction. Christopher Boozy, me and Michael Moore have been saying all along that the Democrats were going to do really well in the midterms. Christopher Boozy believes, and he is sticking by this prediction, that when all is said and done, the Democrats will take the House as well. So all the pundits, they're like, well, you know, there's only uh, so many seats left and Republicans at this point in time, I think Republicans need um, six, six more seats. But a lot of the seats that are being decided belatedly are in California. Many of those areas are going Democratic. I think we still have a chance to have both houses. We'll see. We have a lot to talk about today. Let's take a break and get to it right after this. Take Jonas Esposito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. There was a really, really interesting panel this morning. Um, It brought together secretaries of state, both Republican and Democratic, to talk about election integrity. There's this group called States United Action. It's a bipartisan, well, actually nonpartisan, nonprofit organization, and their mission is to protect elections and democracies. They advocate for election integrity and, um, you know, policies that prevent political violence. So they brought together some um, reelected and newly elected secretaries of state from both both parties to sit on the same panel and talk about how elections are fair and safe and democracy is important. Remember, almost all of Trump's endorsed election deniers that were on ballots, um, the vast majority of them went down to defeat. Um, We have some sound 
from some of the things that these various secretaries of state had to say. Actually, I thought one of the most interesting comments was from Republican Brad Raffensperger. Remember him from Georgia? The guy who took the phone call from Donald Trump? Here's a president calling a secretary of state and telling him all he has to do. Come on. Come on, Brad. All you have to do is find 11,000 more votes. Just find them somewhere. Just find them somewhere, Brad. And though he is a very conservative Republican lawmaker, Brad Raffensperger knew that there were no 11,000 votes anywhere laying around for Donald Trump. And he told him so. And he resisted. He resisted presidential pressure. The same kind of pressure that has caused many a, a Republican senator and Republican congressperson to just curl up and capitulate. Anyway, I want to share some of what they had to say today. I want to start with Brad Raffensperger because I thought his comments, particularly knowing what he has been through, were particularly pertinent. Listen to this. About two weeks ago, I was flying all over the state of Georgia as my final push for election. But it was really the same thing I've been doing for a year and a half, speaking to voters directly face-to-face and letting them know that elections have never been more secure and easier to vote here in the state of Georgia. In fact, what's really interesting is that the Heritage Foundation, which is on the right side of the aisle, recognizes us, number one, for election integrity. Then on the left side of the aisle, the Center for Election Innovation and Research says that we get top marks with a few other states for voter accessibility. So when you're getting accolades from both sides of the aisle, that means you're doing something right. And when I look at the Office of Secretary of State, our job is to make sure we have honest and fair elections for everyone. It's really the mechanics of that. And so in this past election, we're just excited about the results we had, not on the candidates so much as the process of the election. Because if you looked at our average wait time in the afternoon, I screenshotted, we had a two-minute line wait time throughout the state. The longest waits we were seeing were 14 to 16-minute line times. Unbelievable. And then when you got to the front of the line, the processing time for check-in was 47 seconds, pretty much constant for the entire day. And then we posted our results really quickly. A lot of people, I think, right now are saying, well, what is our way back? And I think we've just seen it. It's really integrity, it's character, it's honesty, it's civil discourse. It's the ability to talk to both sides of the aisle. Yep. Both sides of the aisle think that Georgia had free and fair elections. Imagine that. Free and fair elections. I also want to share with you, um, you know, we had this huge blue tsunami in Michigan. And um, we have a Democrat, Michigan Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson. She was also a part of this forum today. This is what she had to say. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful to the voters across the country who stood with us to make this group a reality. 2022 is about selecting the players who will be on the field in 2024 to protect and defend democracy. And we have the strongest team we could have hoped for in the colleagues from Arizona and Nevada that you see here today. Uh, and also my, my dear friend and colleague from Georgia, uh, clearly and unequivocally, Republican, Democratic and independent voters have spoken and they have showed they will not tolerate attacks on our democracy uh, and they will stand with us against any lies, including big lies about their voice and their vote. 
this tremendous demonstration of the strength of Amer- the American people's belief in democracy is something that needs to be emphasized, even in the days ahead, as we may see in some of the states we represented today. More to come and efforts to, to undermine, uh, people's faith in our democracy. Um, because I, I want to make clear that, that we all know that despite these victories and in fact, because of them, none of us are here to rest on our laurels. We are here to roll up our sleeves and continue the work that so many of us have been engaged in for several years. What the 2022 election helps us do is become stronger in that work by clearly saying to election deniers, uh, that, uh, you will not succeed that the will of the people is with us, that the law and the rule of law is with us, that the truth is with us. Um, but again, that the vast majority of American people are on the side of democracy is the true message that voters sent in this election. I agree. I absolutely agree with everything she just said. Congratulations, Jocelyn Benson, Michigan Secretary of State, and congratulations for the state of Michigan. The state of Michigan shows that when gerrymandering doesn't exist, when there is free and fair allotment of uh, voting areas, Democrats win. There are more of us than there are of them. Of course, Democrats win. We're going to take a break. We are coming up on a Union Strong segment, and I think uh, we're going to have a pretty fun conversation about the Workers' Rights Amendment right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. There's new information. Explosive new information. It's how every day starts. Need for information. Get the info you need from Santita Jackson. Weekday morning starting at 6 on WCPT820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Here on WCPT, we do a segment that we called Union Strong. We are big supporters of unions. We believe that a strong union in your country, in your state, in your city, means good working class, middle class Jobs, the kind of jobs that you can use to raise a family with, not the kind of jobs where you have to have two other jobs on the weekend to make ends meet. Anyway, uh, Gary Menzel, who's the president and business manager at Roofers and Waterproofers Local 11, joins us for this segment of Union Strong. Hey, Gary, how are you? I'm great, Joan. How are you today? I'm good. I would imagine that you are feeling pretty good about this election. It is one of the best times to be a worker in Illinois. Uh, we won. We won all the executive offices from secretary of state to the governor, the comptroller's office, the attorney general, the treasurer's office. We kept our super majority in the House and the Senate. We uh, we won our two seats for Supreme Court justices with uh, uh, Liz Rochford and uh, Mary Kay Bryan, and then obviously J.B. Pritzker and Juliana Stratton won, and then we passed the Workers' Rights Amendment. So here in Illinois, we're feeling pretty great. Marty Walsh, Secretary of Labor, this is Apprentice Week this week um, around the country, and Jill Biden and Marty Walsh have stopped in Illinois today, and we 
We were at the Sheet Metal Local Wolf 73, Sheet Metal Workers Local 73 today, and uh, met with Marty. Uh, he talked to apprentices, did a tour. It was a great day, and we talked about the Workers' Rights Amendment and how this will probably, you know, be one of those type of trickle-up effects. Um, I do want to talk about the Workers' Rights Am- Amendment, but you you mentioned something that I wasn't aware of. Apprentice Week? What is that? National Apprentice Week. They do it, you know, every year. They have an Apprentice Week. They select, and, uh, you know, the government gets involved with it. OSHA has these things that they do and stuff, and uh, they just recognize apprenticeships around the country and unions that, uh, you know, create these apprentices apprenticeships that that support working jobs for young uh, men and women who are getting into the trade. So it's a great time. Um, It's something you can kind of Google Apprentice Week every year. And, uh, you know, it just so happened that this perfect timing right after the election and all. And what what a job Marty Walsh is doing uh, as Secretary of Labor. We couldn't have a better better Secretary of Labor. And he's a a card-carrying union guy with uh, the laborers' union in Boston and stuff. So it was a pleasure to meet him and see see what he's doing, you know, going around and talking to apprentices. It's a great day for apprenticeship. Yes, indeed. Um, it was, you know, I have to say, when I first saw the Workers' Rights Amendment, I remember thinking, well, that's a no-brainer. And when we had that panel where people in the chat were saying, well, I heard somebody say it's going to raise taxes and I heard somebody say it's going to drive small businesses out of business or out of the state. And all I could think of was, oh, no, Gary, here we go again with the interests that want to defeat something. So they they can't defeat it on its merits. So they make up lies and try to get people confused and try to get people fearful. And I was, I was, you know, I was so nervous. You know, those newspapers that went out, they were trying to uh, muddy the waters. And I, I, I knew that Illinois was the sort of state that embraced the idea of the workers' rights amendment. And even some people, I'm trying to remember, oh yeah, it, in their, um, in their voter guide, the Trib said, oh, you know, no, vote no on this. It's it's not that it's not a good idea because it's a good idea, but we don't need to have it in our Constitution. You know, and I'm thinking, well, that's talking out of both sides of your mouth. It's a good idea, but we don't need to write it down. Are you kidding yeah. me? And I got I thought, oh, God, no. What if, what if this what if people get worried and afraid and they don't vote for it i was so pleased that that didn't happen you're you're exactly right you know the the tribune went non-union i don't know 20 25 years ago so i don't i don't see them saying anything positive about it in the sense that we need it in our constitution because every time there's an election or every time that the Republicans get some type of control. They're trying to pass some type of right to work laws and stuff. So it's okay when they get in to do something like that. That's all right. But when there's a chance for workers and working people to get a positive result in the state constitution, you know, that, that the trib would say, Oh no, that's not a good idea. We don't need it in there. Of course it's a good idea. You have mm-hmm. people like the Illinois policy Institute spreading out their uh, vitriol over it and stuff and telling everybody this isn't good. It's going to raise your taxes. You had 
Richard Uline from Wisconsin sending money down this way and stuff, trying to defeat this thing. Anytime you see corporations, politicians, right-wing groups trying to tell you you don't need something, people take take notice right away. Vote yes, because you do need that, because they're trying to take something from you. And I'm very, very proud of uh, all the union uh, workers and men and women of Illinois who got out and vote and uh, passed this amendment uh, to the state constitution. It's uh, This is going to make Illinois right now the most union-strong state in the country right here today. We are a model for other states. Um, we have a question. George is calling in uh, from the south side with a question. Go ahead, George. You're on with me and Gary Menzel. Thank you, John. Hi, Gary. Um, George, how are you? I'm a, proud, I'm, I'm a proud teamster today because this is something that was a long time coming, and we really needed it. So people of Illinois should be proud and stepping up for themselves and their kids and grandkids to ensure workers' rights. But here's the question I've got. Um, the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, was uh, one of the greatest advances in the history of this country. But then a lot of it was chopped to pieces by the odious Taft-Hartley Act, which was passed over President Truman's veto in 47. But now, in essence, for the state of Illinois, does this workers' rights amendment restore, at least for us here in the prairie states, all of the rights that were in the Wagner Act that were taken away by the Taft-Hartley Act? I would say no, because that's a federal act. I would say that this is more of the state constitution. This gives us more state rights to do stuff here in Illinois, organize, collectively bargain. But it will transcend into that somewhat when, if, when and if workers have to take cases and, and abuse to the board. A lot of it will come back and it will make it stronger for them in their case. But is it going to restore all of, of the things that we lost and how it got chopped up? I would say no. Okay, well, what I would like to say is that right to work for a right to work means right to work for less. But in Illinois, it's now right to work for more. Well, let's not use the phrase right to work. Let's call it workers' rights from now on because right to work, we know, is in 30-something states in this country, and it means you make less, you get less, and there's less safety on the job. If we start talking workers' rights and it spreads to Michigan, who did a great job getting their state and Senate or their House and Senate back, you know, in their state, the governorship they still hold now. So that's going to be great up there. we got governorships around the country. Now we can start doing something, you know, and, and maybe a lot of these states that, that control this, or, or have a shot at putting this in the state constitution, will put these initiatives on their ballots in the next couple of elections, too. Thanks for the call. Uh, appreciate it. Um, Gary you, Menzel and I are going to be taking a break. We're going to continue with our Union Strong segment right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk. WCPT 820, where facts matter. 
Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And this is our regular sponsored Union Strong segment. I'm joined by Gary Menzel, president and business manager at Roofers and Waterproofers Local 11. We were talking about the Workers' Rights Amendment, and you said something earlier, Gary, about how you thought it was going to have a trickle-up effect. Explain what you mean by that. So if you think about your everyday workers, whether they're factory workers, whether they're, you know, coffee shop workers, just everyday guys that go to work, men and women, whatever job, they may have conversations with their workers now. They may be non-union. They may start saying, hey, this workers' rights amendment passed. You know, does this mean we can start forming or joining or assisting to have a union here at at our company or our, our coffee shop and stuff? So I I think this will uplift people to understand that Illinois is pro-worker. You have the right to form, join, or assist the union. You have the right to try to better yourselves, work in safer conditions, no matter what the situation is at your place of business where you are employed right now. There is opportunity for change here if you are currently a non-union worker. You have the ability to kind of talk to your co-workers and say to yourselves, do we want to, you know, be part of this blue labor movement that, that, that is surging here in Illinois and around the country? When people are looking to be represented by unions, this will give organizers the ability, no matter what industry they're in, to go out and start to talk to some of these workers who maybe over the past have been afraid of, you know, their, their owner or their boss or someone in the, in the company finding out. They have a little more protection here now in Illinois to to actually talk to organizers and talk about it themselves and and try to uplift themselves for better health care, better working conditions, better pay, safer working conditions. So that's where the trickle up effect is. It's, this isn't trickle down like Ronald Reagan days. This <laughs> is under J.B. Pritzker and Joe Biden. We're trickling up here and uh, we have a great opportunity to workers for workers to actually, you know, um, look at this and say, hey, that can be me. I, I want to be union. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a great thing that we have it on the books now in the state of Illinois. Maybe other states will copy us. We had a great midterm election, um, but there were some other um, states around the country um, where there were lots where there were measures, particularly measures to increase the minimum wage. Some of them passed, some of them didn't. One passed in Washington, D.C., but uh, in Portland, Maine, uh, something like that failed. What do you take about efforts to raise the minimum wage for people? Well, you know, most most states, especially if they're a blue state right now, have, have they're progressive with that, you know, progressive governors, um, Illinois, I think we're up to the, the city of Chicago is trying to get to 15. They're phasing it in over time. Illinois is phasing it in over time. We, we could be at 13 something right now or 14 bucks. You know, the national um, minimum wage, I think it's still like seven seventy five or eight bucks or something like that. Nobody should, should have to work for, for something like that. And I mean, it, it's a shame that a state like Maine, you know, is, 
you know, they're more independent type, you know, fairly progressive, but they kind of waver in the middle. That, and I'm not sure what the minimum wage was in Maine or is right now, but um, not passing minimum wage increases over time, that's just destructive for the workers and their family because um, a lot of people that, you know, retire, you know, they may not have been union o- over the years. Maybe they're living on Social Security and now they have to take a second job in their retirement, you know, with their Social Security and they don't have an opportunity to have a fair living wage as a, a minimum wage worker and stuff. So they, they struggle just to make ends meet, especially with the price of gas, you know, uh, services and goods and stuff like that. So, you know, not passing minimum wage increases in states. It's just a pro-business type of state and a pro-business type of uh, attitude to me. Well, one thing, Gary, that I think could possibly happen and I certainly hope will happen. Okay, President Biden got the infrastructure package passed. There's going to be a lot of uh, bridge work and road work and all kinds of different projects that aren't bridges and roads are going to be affected. There's going to be a lot more to do. There are going to be a lot more people needed to do it. President Biden has said that he wants a lot of those jobs to be mandated as union jobs. If unions grow, then I think the power of what unions can accomplish in state legislatures will also grow. Part of the reason I say this is because, you know, Illinois passed the Workers' Rights Amendment. But in Tennessee, on this last ballot, they passed a right-to-work amendment. It's always, Tennessee's always been a right-to-work state, but they decided to put that language in their state constitution. And there are, I believe, currently eight other states that have done the same thing. Right-to-work legislation is union-busting legislation. They just don't want to call it that because they don't want people to connect those dots if they don't already know about that. And I think that with more union workers and unions regaining some of the power that I can remember they had in the 60s and the 70s, maybe some of these um, amendments can be rescinded and be rewritten. It's going to take time, Joan. Um, Yeah. I mean, I feel bad for the just the average day workers in Tennessee that they would allow this and they would vote for this. You know, would you. When you look at around the country, what what was happening with the woman's right to choose, you know, states like Kansas, you know, and then there's other states that that rejected, you know, what the Supreme Court said, you know, and I think that brought a lot of people out to the polls this year. A lot of women came out to say we're rejecting that Republican type of they tell me what what I can do with my body and all that. So I think that was a positive thing that that, you know, that, that the Supreme Court, you know, ruled on that and said, hey, this is what we're going to tell you. you. You you can do. You can't do this and stuff. So women showed up. We need people in those right to work states to stand up for themselves and say, hey, wait a minute. This is anti-worker type of uh, amendments and ballot initiatives. We're rejecting these. You know, when 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 a minimum wage um, uh, ballot initiative comes comes up for for a vote in, in the in the state election, Workers should really think about this and 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 vote no on something like that if 
if, if, if they're, they're, they're trying to keep the numbers low, but if, if they're talking about increasing it over time, every worker should be in for that. Even, even people in unions, whenever you can uplift other people, you're uplifting society and stuff, you know? So I don't see why people would be voting no on stuff like that, or people would be voting for right to work laws, unless they're still misinformed about what right to work really means. Some workers, we, we ask a lot of our apprentices, we ask if they know what right to work means. A lot of them say they think they have the right to work. You know, oh. you do have the right to work, but you don't need that to be said in a state constitution. You really need to look into what the language of that, that ordinance, legislation, or amendment says in your state constitution before you just go down and vote yes or no. You have to decide what side you're on. Do you want something like this or do you not? And these other states that are doing that, well, we knew it was going to happen, too. If we're doing this, the red states are going to try to protect what they have right now and put that on there. It's up to them to inform the people, let them know. It's kind of like in Missouri a couple years ago. They voted that stuff down, the right to work stuff and that, you know. So they Mm -hmm. got the information out, and that's what has to happen. You've got to get the information to the voters and let them make that educated decision themselves. I I think that when people understand what the point is, they do vote for that kind of support. And I was talking about the loss in Maine, but there were, you know, the minimum wage was raised in Nebraska. We still don't have the results in Nevada. The minimum wage was raised in Washington, D.C., um, I mean, when people have a chance to vote on these kinds of of issues, they almost always vote yes. And I think that speaks to the kind of support that unions and union workers have. And I think that sometimes the only way that the other side can win is by, you know, by making the issue muddy by confusing people. Because, you know, for those of you out there who, you know, we're talking about something that was passed in Tennessee, a right to work amendment is now a part of the state constitution there. What that means is that you can go to work at a union shop. But what they're saying is, oh, you don't have to join the union, but you'll get all the benefits. You know, and the argument is, why would you pay those union dues if you can get all the benefits anyway? Isn't this great? Except that then they get the goal is to get more and more people who don't join the union. The union becomes weaker and weaker and in some cases goes away altogether. And that was the point in the beginning. Exactly right. So right to work is designed to tell workers you don't have to pay union dues. Why would you do that? Why would they why would they care what I do with my money if I want to give it to my union or I want to go spend it somewhere else? They try to tell you don't pay union dues to keep you from having power because unions represent the membership. And when we say we represent the membership, we represent the membership with our contractors and politically. We try to educate our workers and membership that these are the politicians that are pushing legislation that is better for you and your family and your future. These are the ones that are pushing you know, legislation for anti-worker um, laws and also positive tax breaks for the corporations. So every member doesn't listen to everything we have to say about it. 
Maybe they're Republican for whatever reason, you know, gun rights, abortion rights, whatever it is. But again, some of our members understand that I'm going to vote for my pocketbook because I, I need health care. I need a raise. I need a living wage. I want to send my kids to college so they can do more with their lives. Other members, you know, they fall into that. I don't want to pay dues type of trap, you know, and that's why you get right to work sentiment from union members. Sometimes. <laughs> Real quick, we got a text from Larry and Wheeling. So the Daily Herald also recommended voting no on the workers' rights amendment. They said something convoluted like Illinois already has workers' laws on the books, and there are parts of the amendment that might work against unions in the future. Huh? Excuse me? Well, <laughs> we'll we'll take our chances with that one, you know. And Good God. Sometimes these newspapers uh, spread this stuff out there because, again, a lot of them don't want their workers uh, unionizing and stuff. You know, in the old days, Joan, we must remember, about every newspaper was unionized and stuff back in the day. You yep. know, all of a sudden unions started to go away in the newspaper business. You know? Yep, and we've seen what's happening there. Um, mm-hmm. Gary, it is always a pleasure uh, for you to join us here at WCPT. We are a big supporter of you and your union and the work you do. And I am so glad that um, that you guys and the other trade unions um, choose to come on WCPT and talk about these really important issues. It means it means a lot to us. Any any one any last thoughts that you want to get in before we wrap this up? All I really want to say is, is it's our pleasure always discussing these issues with you. WCPT does a great job sending the message, the progressive message out to the listeners around the country and locally here. We're proud and honored to be part of it. And I just want all the listeners to understand that, hey, we're going to stay union strong. I hope they stay union strong. And as we keep progressing through this everyday grind of work, you know, we're going to keep pushing union strong legislation for Illinois workers. Gary Menzel, thank you so much for being here. He's the president business manager at Roofers and Waterproofers Local 11. That is uh, going to do it for our Union Strong segment. We are going to take a break for news at the top of the hour and be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. Every evening here at WCPT, you are fortunate enough to be able to listen to the Rick Smith Show. Uh, you also heard him here on election night. He now has graciously uh, taken a little bit of his afternoon to talk to us here about the midterm election results. Rick, how are you doing? Joan, I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on. I was so thrilled that you were available to spend a little time with us today. Uh, you know, anytime you want, I am here for you. Well, I appreciate that. I wish more of the men in my life would say that to me, Rick. <laughs> but, you know, I'll start with you. Um, it has It has been... You know, I don't understand. I really don't. I mean, I don't know if people thought I was just trying to cheer them up. But as as we got closer and closer to the election, I was like, you know, we have a shot here. We have a shot at not only keeping both houses, but maybe even picking up some seats. And 
I was listening to uh, Rachel Maddow in her post-election analysis, and she said, you know, it wasn't just that the polls at the last minute were goofy. She said Republicans, Lindsey Graham, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, they all kept telling us there was going to be a red tsunami. So it was sort of like we believed them, you know, and... And like we shouldn't have done that. Maybe we should have just looked at that maybe a little bit more critically. I, for one, thought it was ridiculous, this argument that women were over Roe v. Wade. Oh, well, you know, they're over that. That's that was in June. It was a big deal then, but it's not a big deal. It won't affect the election. And I was thinking, seriously, do you know any women? Have you talked to any women? Um what was your takeaway, your reaction to everything that took place at the midterms that we know about so far? Right from the beginning, I, I, I knew the Democrats would do okay in the Senate because the math was was okay for them. I, I thought they would at least hold the 50. Uh, I thought they would at least hold control of the Senate. I, I was full hearty positive they were going to lose the House just because of inflation and you know all of the economic stuff. And I said election night, I, we don't know what the wild card is going to be. And that is how angry are, are women? How how angry are they? And are they going to come out in the numbers that you saw in Kansas? And we saw it. We saw that. Yep, they did. And this is this is a huge part of why we are where we are. Also, young people, you know, they did come up not in record numbers, but they did come out in good enough numbers to get where we needed. And the other part is independence as well. And I got to think the row the row issue was a huge part of, of independence you know, breaking towards the president and and the Democratic Party, where that's historically not not something that happens. Also, I would argue that people just didn't buy the Republicans' argument on the economy. Uh, you know, inflation is hurting everybody, but you know, there's no switch in the Oval Office that Joe Biden maniacally flips on and goes, "Oh, you're all going to suffer from inflation <laughs> under my rule." Um, you know, it's. Uh, so I'm, I was happy with the results. If only we could figure out what to do with you know, Ohio and Florida. Uh, but, you know, I'm real happy with where, where we are in this moment. Do you think, as I do, that Donald Trump will indeed announce tomorrow evening that he is going to run for the Republican nomination to be president? I think he has to, because I think he, I think he's reading the tea leaves that there's going to be an indictment at some point. And he wants to be able to say this is all political persecution Uh, because I can't think of mean, Maybe you've got a better explanation. I can't think of any other reason why you would declare yourself a candidate because of all the, you know, the rules that come along in raising money and not being able to grip. And, you know, Mm -hmm. exactly. He's been masterful at doing. I can't think of another reason, you know, why you would you would make this declaration so far in advance other than. Uh, that firewall of saying this is political persecution, just because of all the the grifting he's not going to be able to get away with. Exactly. I think that that's what I've been saying all along, too, that because you got to remember, he only does what is best for himself. And by all accounts, whether there's any legal basis for it or not, Donald Trump believes that somehow being a candidate is going to give him some measure of protection against prosecution. I also think that this disaster for the Republicans in the midterm election has done something else. He sees people trying to pin the blame for this on him. And of course, you know, he's now doing the, well, no, it was Mitch McConnell. It was the, no, the, anybody but me. 
Uh, it was Ron DeSantis's fault. It was Mitch McConnell's fault. But now I think, too, he wants to prove to them that he is not out of it, that he is not a lame duck. He's a man. He's, he's a, a man. man. And he's going to show them because he's going to declare and he's going to do everything he did before to get people all worked up. And I believe that he believes that the Republicans, and frankly, I, I think this is true, are cowards. And even all the ones, Rick, who are saying now, well, you know, we've turned a page. We've turned a page. It's it's the post-Trump era. He wants them to eat their words. And all he has to do is get out there and start getting attention and getting people to follow him. And here's what they're, what I think the Republican opposition is going to do. They're going to, first of all, they're going to stop trashing him. They're just going to be quiet. Then they're going to say some neutral things. And then eventually, if he is strong enough, they're going to start sucking up to him once again. Of course. I mean, come on. You, you, you don't need a crystal ball for that. You just need to look at recent history. Uh, you know, look, Ted Cruz, you know, the guy who I think has the most punchable face in the country. Uh, you know, uh, it's one of these things where, you know, I don't know how Ted Cruz can look himself in the mirror knowing that, you know, you know Donald Trump called his wife ugly and he still had to brown nose him. You know, yep. In my neck of the woods, you call my girl ugly. We got we got problems. We're mm-hmm. rolling in the dirt. Uh, but, you know, it, this stuff doesn't matter to them because they're soulless. It's about power. It's about control. And it's about getting their, you know, it's about getting their power into this. And it's 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 gross. It's disgusting. And the sad reality is for us, us working folk, it's not helping us. Mm-hmm. And this is what what's really frustrating to me. And when we we did our working class heroes radio tour, you know, the thing that I kept coming back to is people are angry. Working people are angry, and for good reason. Mm-hmm. They've been screwed over by bad policy for so long, and sadly, they believe that they believed his line that he was going to recreate. You know, we were going to have infrastructure week every week, and we were going to reshore manufacturing. It was going to be great, and yet, uh, Sleepy Joe, the guy who can't get a word out, the guy who's always in his basement, yet destroying the nation, he's he's rebuilding manufacturing. He's investing in infrastructure. We're actually doing all of the things that the right believes Trump was going to do and never was had a plan for it, never did. But it's actually getting done. And I think the messaging and what's important for, for you and me and for other folks here on WCPT and other places is to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there are major things happening that are helping the working people of this country. And there's a way to, to deal with that anger. By making lives better, giving people better wages, hours, conditions, opportunity, hope for the future for their kids. That's how we beat the hate and the the anger on the right. Lead good lives. Yes. Um, We have a caller. Um, Robert from Indiana wants to do his speculation on a Trump presidential run. Bob, you're on with me and Rick Smith. Hi, guys. Um. My my whole sense of Donald Trump is he's not a politician. He doesn't give a rat's fat toot about the politics or the country. The only thing he's in right now is a beauty contest with Rick DeSantis. He, he <laughs> needs to again. He needs to again prove 
that, oh, I'm the most popular, I'm the prettiest candidate, everybody loves me, everybody hates him. And, you know, consequences be damned. That's, he's never had anything going other than this beauty contest. When he left The Apprentice, the very first thing he said was, I got better ratings than Schwarzenegger. Come uh. on. This is, yeah, the question that I got for you, Bob, is it, is it the beauty contest that we would watch or is it the, the 13-year-old, the Miss Teen Unit ones that he was going through the dressing rooms on? Yeah, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, creepy, that. creepy. This and thinking because he's so popular and pretty, he can get away with it. <laughs> yeah, but, well, you know, he spent he spent four years being the eighth grade girl that ran for student president and won. But out of a class of 100, she only got 99 votes and spent the next year looking to see who that one person was. <laughs> this, this is all he is. Yeah. You're this absolutely it. right. It's, it's so thin-skinned. Very, very, very thin-skinned. Um, Bob, thank you for that call. Rick and I have to take a real quick break. I'm going to be back with more with Rick Smith right after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa, you feel that right away. Oh. It's just refreshing. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Rick Smith. You will be hearing him later today here on WCPT as you do every day. Monday, every evening, Monday through Friday. Uh, we have just been talking about uh, whether or not Mr. Trump is going to make the big announcement that he is running to be president uh, for the Republican Party in 2024. Here's my fear, Rick. You know, they talk about peaking too soon. My fear is that Donald Trump enters the race. Maybe initially he makes a splash. Um, but, but because of either the indictments against him or just a general maybe lack of enthusiasm from the base, that over time it appears that he is a deeply wounded candidate. I think that if he declares he's running, I don't think Ron DeSantis or any of the rest of them have the stones to get in the race right away. But if he starts to appear, like he is wounded and a Ron DeSantis can step in as the savior of the Republican Party. I think that's a scenario that might potentially happen. And I don't think Ron DeSantis. Well, I've been wrong before. I don't think he has what it takes to appeal to the country, but I think he's potentially a stronger candidate for the Republicans than Donald Trump. What do you think of that scenario, that if unless Trump goes big and blows up and is just awesome in his campaigning the way he was before, that it appears that another Republican could step in down the road 
to to save it for them, to try to save it for them. No, I think he's a cornered rat, and I think you know he's he's got to go big. He's got to he's got to assert his dominance, and you know he's going after Ron DeSanctimonious, which I just go, what are you in in, in third grade? And and look, mm-hmm. we've seen this movie before, and this is where again we've seen this movie before, and like all sequels, they usually suck. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that there there are still some sane, rational Republicans who bought. Hey, you know, uh, he's he's going to do all the things that that we need him to do on you know. Whatever their vision is, the tax cuts, the business stuff, he's a businessman kind of stuff. Uh, I got to think after seeing the hand that he played during his four years, uh, after seeing the, the the giant S show that was the midterms here, that honestly, Republicans should have walked away with uh, on just just without question. I got to think some of those middle of the road Republicans who are just lever pullers, that they're going to be thinking twice about about a Trump presidency. Now that said, the fear, like you, like you've pointed out, is that someone more functional, uh, someone who knows how to, how to operate in the government setting, who has the same dangerous kind of mentality uh, could arise. And I, I've always said DeSantis is my greatest fear because he's every bit of crazy policy wise and knows how to work the machinery. Um, mm-hmm. That was the one thing that Trump didn't know. He didn't know how to drive the car. Uh, there, there are lots of pictures of him holding the steering wheel, like on you know Apprenticeship Week and an Infrastructure Week, of which we had a whole bunch of those. Uh, and this is Apprenticeship Week as well. We could talk about that a little bit. But um, my, my, I'm, I'm with you to a point. But I, I think he's going to wreck the whole thing before he allows someone to, to take his position. Which part of me goes, that's probably what the Republican Party needs. Uh, they need a wreck it Ralph. They need they need Trump to come in and, and swing the swing the ball, if you will. Yeah, that's um, that's kind of what Charlie Sykes was saying, that very same thing on uh, the 11th hour on I think it was last Friday night. Andy, do we have that Charlie Sykes clip? Let's play it now. Or against oh, Ron DeSantis. It basically means I'm not going quietly. Um, I'm going to announce next week. Um, I don't care. I don't care who I hurt. If you do not nominate me, I will burn the house down. I will destroy and attack any other Republican that comes against me. And, you know, think about how many uh, decisions Republicans have made over the last six years that you and I have talked about, Stephanie, that have brought us to this moment that they can't they know that they need to move on against him. They know that he is a loser. They know that he is a boat anchor. And yet, how do you get rid of somebody that will not go, that will never acknowledge defeat? And so you watch what he's doing right now, um, how he is splitting even the MAGA base. Now, the one thing that Donald Trump is convinced of, and he may not be wrong, is that he thinks this is going to be a replay of 2015 and 2016, where people say, well, this is outrageous. This is too far. How dare you say that about Ron DeSantis? And you have the donor class and the uh, conservative media turn against him, and he will stare them down. And he is confident that they will cave into him. What do you think about that, Rick? I don't disagree. Look, I, I you know, I, I haven't heard Charlie before, but uh, that. Uh, that makes sense. I mean, it, it, it's who Trump has always been, isn't it? it it's all about the South. Mm-hmm. He doesn't give a damn about the, the country. He doesn't care about the Constitution. He doesn't care about working people. I mean, it's 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 always been incredible to me 
that you know someone driving a truck or swinging a hammer or you know flipping burgers thinks that this guy who has screwed working people every day of his life somehow had this grand epiphany that now he cares about them that's the miraculous How did that happen because i agree with you i mean he was notorious for not paying workers let alone not paying lawyers yep. Um, and, and when people would try to sue him, he would counter sue them to death so that they would eventually accept pennies on the dollar if there was even a settlement at all. At all. How did people believe that this guy was going to help working class Americans? How did that happen? Well, I, my theory on it is and it was, you know, to be honest, you know, uh, it was confirmed for me during our working class heroes tours. We went through Iowa and we went through Wisconsin and we went through Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania, places that, you know, deindustrialization has just wreaked havoc. Um, people are angry. And they, you know, I use the analogy, even a, drown, a drowning man will, will grab an anchor if you throw it to him. Because it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of hope. Maybe this will do it this time because both mm. parties have, have let working people down. Republicans hate working people. That's true. That Look at their policies. That's the reality. But the Democratic Party hasn't always been their friend either. You know, I point out that, you know, Jimmy Carter was supposed to undo Taft-Hartley. Bill Clinton was supposed to pass strike replacement. Uh, Barack Obama shook my hand twice and promised me we were getting something better than the Employee Free Choice Act. We got nothing. Working people got nothing. What did we get? We got NAFTA and bad trade deals that sent our jobs overseas. And we knew that was going to happen. And what was what was replaced with was, well, grueling service sector jobs and poverty wage poverty wages because we were told we don't want those dirty jobs and look i don't know that we want dirty jobs back again what we want is we want those union jobs back again we don't want the 1920s factory jobs we want the 1960s and 70s union jobs we want those jobs that you could support a family on that you can build a future on that your kids can can have take a risk and maybe fall back on and it reminds me you know a couple years ago i was i was about to give a speech in front of a rally uh here in harrisburg and it was an education rally. And I met this kid who, who said, look, you know, I'm the first in my family to go to college. You know, my grandfather wanted to go but couldn't for old-fashioned reasons. Um, my father wanted to go because he got called off to, to, to Vietnam. Um, he, goes, this is, he goes, they couldn't go. But they went to the mill and they led very good lives. Uh, they were able to support their families and, and provide for the next generation. He goes, I don't have that option. There's no mill. This is my mm-hmm. only option. And this is what working people are struggling with. There's no plan B. And and they're struggling. And this is why the anger, and this is why I keep saying Joe Biden is doing the right stuff. Talking about reshoring manufacturing, investing heavily in infrastructure, and, and the, the key component, talking about strengthening unions. The secret sauce of my grandparents' generation. Building stuff here, investing here, but making sure those wages are sufficiently high enough that people can have the dignity and respect to be able to support themselves and their families without begging for, for pennies or school lunch programs or any of that. That's what working people want. They don't want to make a killing. They just want to make a good living. And this is where I think Biden's on the right track and he's the right guy for the right moment. I think he is an amazing president on the basis of what he's accomplished in his first two years alone. I think he would go down in history as being one of the most successful 
presidents we've had. Um, on a related note, I just, wish he, supposedly, I just wish he could get it out. I just wish yeah. I just wish he could say it. Because here's the, here's I the know. fact. This is where in the TV world that we live in, you know, if you yep. if you talk to somebody, you know, they think Donald Trump did amazing things on infrastructure and did amazing things on saving factories. And the reality is he did bupkis. No. He did nothing. He did a right. lot of projecting. He did a lot of self-promotion. He did a lot of BS. And he's a con man after all. Whereas we got the guy who's actually doing the work, who's not saying a word about it. That's why you, me, others have got to be out there sounding the alarm. Things are getting better. We're making lives they better. Are. They're going to create jobs, and things are going to be better. And you've got to you got to stay the course. That's the reality. And I think this election, I think that message was there as well. Democrats make people's lives better. Democrats deliver. That's what we've got to make sure everybody understands. I I saw somebody before the election, some reporter was interviewing a young voter and they were like, or do you think you'll vote Republican or Democrat? And he said Republican. And why? Well, you know, because they're so good with the economy. I mean, really? I was like, oh, honey. Oh, honey. One of the things I loved about Hillary Clinton, uh, she had a great line. You know, one of the taglines was you need a Clinton to clean up after the bush, after a bush. (laughs) Uh, because of how they destroy the economy. It takes a Clinton to clean, it, clean up after the Bushes or something like that. But it was a great frame because, you know, they did. They just, you, know, you hand them a good economy, they F it up. What did Trump do? He got a good economy. And what did we end up with? Well, mm. yep. now the pandemic, yep. I yep, know, yep, yep. caveat. But the reality no. is we're still heading downward anyway before the pandemic. Rick, thank you so much. I love talking with you. It is so much fun. Thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing part of your afternoon with us. Now, I know you have a show to get ready for tonight, so uh, we'll be listening. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Anytime. I'm here for you. Okay. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Tune into the Tom Hartman radio program, your home for news, opinion, and insight, right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I am very pleased to be joined at this time by with Alex Sims, founder of Black Bench Chicago. We have spoken to Alex in the past. Uh, it seemed like a good time to get an update on what they're doing. Alex, welcome back to the program. Hi, Joan. Thanks for having me. First of all, for our listeners who didn't uh, catch the interview last time we talked, explain Black Bench Chicago, the group that you founded, and what it aims to do. Sure. Um, We are a group for black millennials um, that want to be involved in the public affairs space. Um, It's a program that was founded, and our key advisors are um, Secretary, um, well, former Secretary um, Jesse White and Jackie Grimshaw helped chair the program. The whole idea is for it to be intergenerational, so to train the next generation of leaders to take on roles in the public affairs space. So it's a nine-month-long program where we meet every month um, to get us ready kind of to fill the footsteps 
um, and we needed to kind of pass on the knowledge from one generation to the next. So it's been great. We just all met as a group, and now we're looking at the election ahead to see what we can do and what kind of change we can make. You must be pretty pleased by looking at the voting numbers. Everybody said, oh, well, you know, young people, they care so much. Why don't they vote? Why don't they vote? Well, it's kind of seemed like they did vote this last time around. What are your thoughts on that? They did. I'm so glad you said that. You know, in the city of Chicago, you know, millennials are responsible for almost 34 percent of the voter turnout. And um, you're right. People say that we don't turn out and we do. This election was a great example of that. Um, If you think about millennials, um, we've seen 9-11. We've seen the housing crash, the student loan debt. Now a global pandemic, <laughs> um, and um, they, some might argue a rise of something kind of crazy happening out there, and we're tired, you know. Um, I think we're very tired, but we still turn out because we're impatient and we're determined for some change, and this election showed that. Um, I know that there's a lot of us that are ready to also run for office and fill, fill these um, gaps. But we turned out and we made a huge impact in this upcoming election or in this past election. Now, um, you were very involved in politics. You were very involved with uh, President Barack Obama's campaigns uh, and some others. Any thoughts of running for office, maybe? Um, I myself, no. However, I do think it's what's really exciting about the black bench is that um, out of our group, it looks like we have we have one that is running for office for sure. He just announced um, he'll be running for the alderman in the 21st ward. His name is Ronnie Mosley. Um, and then there's two people who have not announced yet, but I've heard that they're also thinking about running in this upcoming municipal. Um, so it's just really exciting to see, you know, what our group can do. Um, there's other people in who are part of the black bench that are, you know, works for labor unions. They work in government. They run their own nonprofit. Um, so the black bench. Up. Oh. Next class, you know, after this election, that'll do the same. So um, I kind of like to be in the background and help. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's really cool to see that um, Ronnie Mosley has decided to run and he's been endorsed by former alderman. Uh, Howard Brook, well, the current alderman Howard Brookins, and a lot of others in that ward. I have a theory that part of the reason why young people came out to vote in such large numbers this time around is because they've now learned, sadly, the hard way that what who's in office and what they do affects the way we live. And of course, I'm talking about a lot of um, younger people who grew up with the protections uh, for a woman's reproductive health and saw the U.S. Supreme Court strip those rights away, rights that they grew up with, rights that I'm sure they thought they would always have. Now it's up close and personal. Do you agree with me that that was a big motivator? And what else motivated this demographic to get out there and vote? I do think that was a big uh, motivator. I think it was kind of hard to see, um, you know, that those numbers break down across the country, though. It was interesting for me to see how some women voted on that in different ways. Um, But I do think that that was a huge part. I think that there is a generational divide over some core challenges um, or 
and core issues, and um, and young people want to make sure that our voices are heard. Um, and I think that an older generation has always been heard, and we haven't had a chance to do that. And I think we're going to see that in this upcoming municipal election. I think that um, the municipal election affects our day-to-day lives more than any other election. So it's going to be really fun to see young people get out and do that, because I think you're right. The um, the Supreme Court ruling, um, but then when it comes down to our local stuff, issues like police brutality and just city services are things that young people care about, and I think you're going to see it happen. Alex, who? what qualifications do you need to be a part of the program? So for Black Bench, you need to be um, an expert in your field is what we call it, so it's pretty kind of broad, and we do that because we want to really represent Black Chicago. So that means, you know, someone who could be, you know, a strong activist in your community or one of the best lawyers in your community or anything in between. Um, It's really important that we are representing what Chicago looks like. Um, And then we would like you to be a millennial um, as well. Um, And then um, you fill out the application, which will be a new class after the municipal election. So that will go out live. And then you'll be accepted into a class of probably around 30 people. We um, we originally set out to have a class of 15, but we were overwhelmed by the amount of applications and wow, the 30 last time. Yep, <laughs> that's amazing. So, and the people who were part of the program, what did they tell you their goals were? Why did they want to be in this program? I think originally it was to learn more about you know po- politics or learn more about kind of running for office. It was to learn more about how things work because, you know, there's always something behind the curtain in Chicago politics. And what was so cool about Black Bench is we brought those people to talk to them and teach them what is really behind the curtain. Um, But I think the number one takeaway really was the community. I think they all left with feeling as if they had someone else um, to lean on in a community. They all they have a text thread that they text each other every day throughout the day, <laughs> talking about what they're experiencing in their work life and the political life. So I think they left feeling like they're part of a small black bench family that they really appreciate. Um, so, yeah, they came kind of w- hoping to gain that knowledge, which they did. But the bigger takeaway is really the community that they left with. For uh, Ronnie Mosley, who's already said uh, they want to run for older person, would your organization do anything to try to? I know that there's a you you educate done and you want black leaders to be um, better prepared in a lot of different areas. What specifically can you do for somebody who wants to run for political office? Yeah, so we won't be making any you know um, any public endorsements because we're you know five hundred one c three. But I think as you as we set you up, if you're if you've been through the black bench, I think you you leave with so many skills. You know, you're meeting with, for example, the person who came in to talk to the black bench about how to do a budget for your campaign is running Ralph Warnock's race right now. He was, um, you know, he was JB Prickster's deputy campaign manager, Quentin Folk. So now Quentin taught everyone on black bench, you know, how to um, do his how to do their budgets for their campaigns. And, you know, now um, they're, they're left with that skill set. So we really do bring experts to you to teach you some of these skill sets. And now 
the guy who taught them how to do digital and field just helped run Beto O'Rourke race out in Texas. So it's those types of skills that I think um, are very fun um, to learn by experts. And also it's, it's important to see black experts. Both of those young men were black leaders um, leading the biggest Democratic Party races in the country. Um, and um, it's great to see them passing those skill sets on to other young black leaders. We need to take a break. I'm speaking with Alex Sims, founder of Black Bench Chicago. We are going to continue our conversation right after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Alex Sims, who founded Black Bench here in Chicago. It is an organization that takes already, frankly, reasonably successful young people and gives them more skills and more tools to to rise up through the ranks of whatever their chosen area is. We talked about how um, lots of um, younger people with community experience or any kind of expertise uh, are eligible for this. And now I'd like to talk to you, Alex, a little bit about what kinds of things you've already told me about how um, some very successful people come and mentor your your group. But I know you also sort of have a curriculum and um, I thought it was really interesting that part of your curriculum was uh, Chicago history of politics and black political culture. How did you come up with these ideas of what you want to share with this group? Oh, yeah, thanks, Joan. That's a great question. I mean, for us, you know, I know that for myself, you know, I have a um, consulting firm here in Chicago and we range in our clients, um, some of them being political, some of them being corporate. And it was really important for me to learn all about the history of Chicago politics whenever I did anything. And I kind of call it like Chicago's political potholes. When you're driving down Lakeshore, you don't want to, you know, hit one of those potholes. <laughs> so it's really important yeah. to know about them um, before you kind of step into them. So um, we, we brought together people like um, Jackie Grimshaw, who came and told us a little bit about what it was like to work for Harold during that time um, and brought people like Ken Bennett, who told us what it was like to work for almost every mayor um, and told us what the Chicago machine was like and then what organizing was like. Um, Ken had worked for um, Harold Washington and also um, some time with Speaker Madigan and also um, had recently worked on Tony Parkwinkle's campaign, but then had also worked for Mayor Emanuel and the Daily. So he was able to run through every mayor and what the different um, operations were like. Um, it was also great to hear from Mike Stratmanis with the Obamas uh, and Treasurer Summers. It was great to hear from Stacey Davis Gates with the Teachers Union and Tara Cooper. Um, Melody Span Cooper came in and talked about um, communications and black press with Carl West. So we just have an amazing history um, with all of our different um, skills here in Chicago, being such a powerful black city. And um, it was it's really important to know what you're kind of stepping into um, in the history behind it all. 
Well, you know, it's your I was looking through your curriculum and frankly, we should all be we should all be sitting in on these classes um, because many of us never learned this stuff in school. And a lot of us hasn't haven't learned it, even as we try to be good citizens, because a lot of being a good citizen and being an effective leader is knowing how the system works, don't you think? I do. I mean, even as some of, you know, as some of our um, applicants and then and then some of our cohorts told us they wanted to run for Alderman, mean, we had to ask again, so what is the Alderman's job? Is it to be a legislator? And are they supposed to be a true legislative body or is it for city services? I think that, um, you know, your average voter looks at, at the Alderman like, to keep the streets clean and things like that. But really, that falls on the ward superintendent and in the ward super, and that's the city service, right? Um, but that's the voters might vote on for you for a different reason than what your actual job is, and it's things like that that um, take a lot of time to learn about, and then doing the job is a whole different thing than getting elected to do the job. So, um, really going through the history of all of that was great, um, and it's great to learn with a group that's ready to learn and eager to help. The uh, first class that, or the earlier uh, students that you've had through the program, what sorts of things have they gone on to do? So we have some that, you know, one went on to be the communications director for um, Speaker Welch. We had one go on as now um, executive director with um, SEIU Healthcare and president of the council. We have one that um, as I said, Ronnie's running for election. <laughs> um, we have one that's doing women employed. I mean, we have one that's an executive director of Hustle Mommies. I mean, we have so many amazing, I, I don't want to leave anyone out, <laughs> that amazing work. I can't even begin. Um, so I think that it's really exciting. They were already doing great work, but I think that this kind of helped them know what other resources are out there, and some of them have transferred jobs, and we're just trying to kind of keep up with everybody. Some are in corporate work. We have some that work um, in cannabis, some that work um, for some of the development companies, like Related. Um, So it's very cool. How do you fund your organization? Um, That's a great great question. (laughs) When we first started out, we um, I just made a couple phone calls to some black donors um, and told them about the program and told them who was on the advisory board. And they, you know, we just asked for three checks. The three checks were given and we were fine from there. Um, This year, I think we're going to ask for some of the advisory board members to also donate and probably do a bigger um, fundraising push than last time. Um, But yeah, it was important to us that we were funded um, by the black community because it was a program for the black community. Would your organization be eligible for grants because you're a nonprofit? Definitely. Um, and I think that we're at a place where, you know, now that we've had this first round, we plan to do something like that in the future. So um, yeah. as you have a track record now. <laughs> right, right. As we ramp up, I think that would be something that we. Uh, Alex, did you drop out? Andy's Alex there? I'm right here. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. You um, you dropped out there. Can you say that again? 
Yeah, um, I think it's definitely something we'd love to do um, in the future. I, we've had a couple foundations ask us if they, if, um, if we'd like to kind of work out of the foundation and be housed there. So I think as we work on ex, uh, making the curriculum stronger, we'll think about something like that. But I think it's really important to the community that we're independent and and sticks true to the original mission as well. So when you when you hold these um, meetings and classes, where do people gather? So when we started, the first couple were virtual because it was the pandemic. Oh, the that's right. We to, then we were able to come together, and we, it was um, at Link Unlimited, actually, because Jonathan Swain um, allowed us to use that space. Um, he was our chair of the advisory board. Um, moving forward, we may have it um, at our office for my firm, which is downtown. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of we, we were able to operate in a bunch of different spaces, which is great. What what made you decide to start doing this? You had enough on your plate. You know, you were already doing a lot of things. And this is a huge undertaking. Where did this come from? Uh, thank you, John. I do have a lot on my plate. <laughs> uh, yeah, we um, I, I participated in the Urban League Impact Program which is a program uh, that is kind of similar to this, but it's not public affairs or political focus. It's just um, for kind of black adults in expertise to get together. And when I was in that program, my cohort kept saying that this was missing. I would kind of chime in in the discussions and I would give everyone in my, in the cohort um, what the political landscape was. And they kept saying, Alex, we don't have something for this for black people and it's really missing. And you have a lot of information that other people don't know and it needs to be passed on. And our generation is missing this. And then I had conversations with um, my former um, boss, treasurer Kurt Summers. And he told me that, that he was a part of something with Brian Lee. And um, I think it was um, Jesse Jackson Jr. And a couple others at the time um, that was a training program. And then Kwame Raul was in it as well. Um, and then he said that he knew of something that was before his time that President Obama and David Miller were a part of. So there was something that was like this, um, but it has never been consistent for um, black people. Um, so I spoke with um, Jonathan Swain and others, and um, we wanted to put it together. And um, that, this is what kind of came about. Well, I think it's an amazing effort, and I think that um, your graduates are definitely going to be people to watch. As uh, as we wrap this up, w- here's an opportunity to give our listeners one last message. What do you want the people listening to us to take away from our conversation? I think that millennials are definitely in a place where um, they are making their mark. Um, I think that the numbers speak for themselves, but... 34% of the voter turnout in the city is a large turnout. So I, I'm hoping people and voters, but more specifically candidates, think about that in their messaging and in their platforms, um, respecting that millennials are turning out. So the, the platforms coming forward should target those those votes because um, they're going to determine whether or not you win or lose. So it's exciting to see our generation do that, um, and I'm ready for these upcoming municipals. 
Well, I'm I'm more excited for the upcoming elections than I otherwise would have been because I've always thought it was a huge tragedy that this younger, more moderate, more open-minded generation that we are raising up and are becoming adults are not getting involved because we desperately need that kind of energy to uh, save the system that those of us in the older demographic don't, we don't seem to be able to pull it out of the fire, Alex. So um, keep doing what you're doing because I think the younger generation is going to have to fix this world on their own. No, I think that we appreciate you guys and we've learned from you guys too. So it's a, it, we need to do it together. together. Okay. That's a deal. Thank you so much. Um, I'm talking with Alex Sims, who's the founder of Black Bench Chicago. Um, Thank you, Alex, for being here. Um, We are going to continue on with politics after we take a break for news at the top of the hour. Uh, Sadly, though, I have to also share with you a winter weather advisory. Oh, it's the first one. It just came out a little while ago. McHenry Lake, DePage, Northern Cook, and Central Cook Counties from 6 a.m. Tuesday morning to 6 a.m. Wednesday morning, a winter weather advisory. There's going to be snow. There's going to be slush. In some places, there could be as much as five inches of snow. Um, But they're saying little or no snow along the Lake Michigan shoreline. Um, But some places could see two inches, some see five inches. But either way, the roads are going to be slippery tomorrow morning. Be careful. And also, as part of that advisory, in some areas, this snow is going to come down hard and fast. Um, In some places, we could see more than one inch an hour. That'll be oh, the worst of it is going to come late afternoon, Tuesday to early Wednesday morning. But the advisory kicks in 6 a.m. Tuesday. That's when things um, may start getting wintry and snowy by Tuesday afternoon. In some places, it could be bad. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. We like to talk politics with Spencer Critchley. He is the author of a book called Patriots of Two Nations. He also does a podcast that you can find on uh, wherever you get your podcasts. It's on Apple Podcasts, other places, called Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. He uh, he joins us again so we can talk midterms. Hey, Spencer, how are you? Hi, Joan. Uh, I'm feeling a lot better than I was last time. We talked. <laughs> yeah, you and, you and me both. It's nice to have these victories under our belt. You know, there's at least one... A data cruncher who I follow who still believes that the Democrats are going to eke out control in the House. He thinks it's going to be a one vote margin for the Democrats. He he sees the Democrats coming away with 219. 
And I know that nobody else is saying that. Everybody else is saying, well, you know, oh, it looks like um, the Republicans are going to take it by a small margin. But everybody else has been so wrong on so many things. I don't know whether I believe everybody else or this one data cruncher who I follow. Do you have any sense of this? Well, I'm always really reluctant to predict the future, and that's one of the few, uh, you know, uh, records of predictive success that I can proudly point to. <laughs> You're successful at not predicting the future. I like yeah, that. Not falling, into the, not falling into the trap. And and actually, I think there is a deeper point there that um, willingness to make confident predictions about essentially unpredictable events, has, it passes for a mark of expertise. The very confidence marks uh, passes for a mark of expertise. You see this in stock trading all the time. I mean, basically... Nobody should try to actively trade stocks, except a very, very <laughs> tiny, tiny minority of the population who have access to supercomputers and, and the best talent in the world. Um, and yet people keep trying and they keep paying attention to people who predict the directions of the stock market. And those people are wrong at least as often as they're right. And they're usually wrong more often than they're right. Um, and, it's, and all they're selling is the illusion of confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, it's the same thing with politics. It's it's an enormously complex emergent phenomenon, as they say at the Santa Fe Institute, one of the homes of chaos theory and uh, emergent studies. It's just there's just uncountable variables constantly changing from one moment to the next. There's no way to predict. So um, that's and I, I think I, I'm always reluctant to make a prediction. I think the rise of cable television has confused this issue sometimes more than it's helped because as you know or maybe you don't know i don't know if you spend any time thinking about this people who get those full-time consulting contracts whether it's on msnbc or cnn those um those contracts are worth a pretty penny and sometimes i think when they have pundits on who uh, maybe are new to cable television those pundits try to say something extreme in the hope of getting noticed, of, of standing out from the crowd, you know, especially when you see these roundtable discussions where there's five people, you know, who do you remember? You're going to remember the person who said, you know, by God, I think the asteroid's going to hit tomorrow, you know? Yeah. And sometimes I think that people bring more bombast and hyperbole to their opinions simply because they want the audience and the powers that be to notice them and remember them. Yeah, I mean, even with the best of intentions, uh, if we assume the best of intentions among everyone involved, you get the behavior you incentivize. Yeah. So the incentive on cable TV is to be memorable, as you say. So there's going to be pressure to, if you have a choice in your head between saying something that's, less exciting and versus something that's more exciting, you're, you're got a fair bit of pressure to go towards the more exciting thought, the more provocative thought. Yeah. Cause it just makes better TV. There you go. Um, <laughs> you know, and that's a challenge I face all the time. Um, when I'm on TV, uh, you know, and I spent a long time as I think you did, um, advising other people on how to be effective on television and in uh-huh. other forms of media and letting them know, look, and this was a, this was a, a few years ago, it's even shorter now, but I'd say, look, out of everything you say, you might get eight seconds on a newscast. Yep. So make sure it's the one thing you want people to remember. Yeah. And that's going to be the most emotionally intense 
picturesque, provocative thing you say. And, and you know, with my clients, I'd say, and it needs to be honest. <laughs> you know, we just yeah. want, want dastardly cleverness. That's where that idea for my podcast came from. <laughs> was a slogan I used to use of dastardly cleverness in the service of good. We're going to use the techniques that are used to sell potato chips and movie tickets and shady political candidates, but yeah. we're going to use it in the service of good, you know? Um, but anyway, that's the, that's the, the incentives point towards that. And I struggle with that when I'm on TV, but I, and I, I hope I uh, manage to find ways to um be interesting and, and capture people's attention, uh, but not by just provoking them mindlessly, you know, and being outrageous, but by, you know, the other way to do it is to try to say something that's not just the conventional wisdom. <laughs> sort of stands yes. by perhaps offering a little bit of insight. And there have been, you know, there are plenty of other people who I think are, are very good at that. Well, when I used to be a reporter, even if I went to an expert and I got all the facts from them on uh, videotape, what I was mostly looking for was emotion or think of it as, you know, the play by play, the who, what, where, when and why. As the reporter, I could always do that better than they can. I can figure out which of the data is important. I can say it in a way that's more understandable than almost every expert. So I don't I might want to have that information on tape, but that's not what I'm going to use in my story. What I'm going to use in my story is the anecdote, the heartfelt anecdote, or the the statement about how they feel about what they've discovered. That, you know, I guess in terms, it's just sort of like I look to them for the color. I could do the play-by-play uh, far better than they could. But, you know, those, um, those thoughtful, passionate, emotional moments... That's what uh, that's what an expert can bring to the story. And I think that when it comes to politics, people have taken that maybe a step or two too far where it is, you know, I'm going to be the loudest or the angriest or the most cynical um, because that's how I'm going to make my mark personally. Anywho. Yeah, it's yeah, it's been industrialized. And, and that explains a lot of the behavior in the Republican Party. You see somebody like a Carrie Lake. For example, who I think is deeply cynical, just cynicism all the way down, uh, or a Josh Hawley or a Ted Cruz, and because there's a, it's at an industrial scale, you know, of just pretending to believe things you don't believe and being del- deliberately provocative and appealing to the absolute worst instincts, which is where the extreme version of this leads. It's like way beyond tabloid journalism. Uh-huh. Um, and and pure. Carrie Lake has the same problem. Well, we'll see if it's a problem that Donald Trump did. You can go back in her history and find where she supported people and took stances that are 180 degrees from what she proposed and what she was saying and she was when she was running as a candidate. And sure, sometimes candidates grow and sometimes they change their minds on issues and sometimes they don't really care enough about what they believe to stand for it. They'd rather be elected than to be somebody who has certain core beliefs. And I see that in Carrie Lake. It's that old Donald Trump. Just tell me what I have to say. You know, tell me who I have to support and I'll do it. You know, just I'll be that person. Yeah, I said this the other day to somebody that, you know, I have no doubt whatsoever Trump would be an enthusiastic communist if he thought that was what exactly. Was the most. 
Well, for most of his life, he was a Democrat. But there's um, I think this is in the first Michael Wolff book uh, where um, when he was thinking about running, he said to somebody, well, I'm you know, if I ever ran, if I ran, if I run for president, I'm going to run as a Republican. And he said, because those people are stupider and like I've got a better shot um, at fooling them. Than, than the Democrats. And, you know, that was something that never really got a lot of traction, a lot of um, media focus that he did that. But he was very clear eyed and very cynical about what he was going to do and the and the best way to accomplish it. Yeah, many people close to him have commented over the years about his contempt for his own followers. Yes. Somebody I forget who said that, you know, his working class followers are the kind of people who would never dream of letting into Mar-a-Lago and you know, would never want to share any breathing space with them unless it was at one of his campaign rallies. And I think some of that is his own self-contempt, you know, coming from Queens, always feeling like an outsider in the elite world of Manhattan and being very resentful about it. And um, I think I think there's a complex stew here of even on the part of many of his followers uh, who must sense on some level that contempt, but, you know, delude themselves into thinking it's not for them. It's for people a little different from them uh, or the suckers who aren't really on the inside the way they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think some of that, you know, there's a complex mix of anger, resentment and shame comes into all of this. And I think that's all inside Trump. It's in his own psychology. And it's also it's a long, you know, it's a longstanding theme in, the, in well, any society, no doubt. I mean, shame and humiliation and resentment are all they're just tightly wound up in human psychology. But in the American story, I think, for example, one of those themes dates from slavery in the Civil War. You know, the humiliation of losing the Civil War um, on behalf of what I refer to as counter enlightenment America in my book. Um, it's the shame of losing. It's also the shame of knowing you're morally wrong, you know, knowing in your heart that slavery was a terrible, terrible sin, and then having to pretend that there were good reasons for it mm-hmm. and maintain that fiction for more than a century afterwards. Um, all of that, I think, is tied up. And this is not to simplify Trumpism and say it's all just racism, although that's obviously a pretty significant component of it, but it doesn't explain all of Trumpism. But, yeah, I think that's that's all in there. We need to take a break. I'm speaking with Spencer Critchley, author of Patriots of Two Nations, also the podcast Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. Um, We have um, a caller who wants to talk with you, Spencer, about the election. Matter of fact, if you would like to call in and talk to Spencer, 773-763-9278. We'll be right back after a quick break. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. The Devil's Advocates. You recall the Capitol insurrection? A post-ABC News poll showed 54% said Trump should be criminally charged for inciting the riot. That's like a litany of criminal allegations against the former president. You can say it's all partisanship and a witch hunt, but there wasn't one credible accusation against Obama during his entire eight-year term. So how Republicans just ignore all the evidence? I mean, he was perpetrating a coup on multiple levels. The Devil's Advocates on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk, weeknights, 6 to 8. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. 
Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Spencer Critchley, author of Patriots of Two Nations and the person behind the Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good podcast. Well, the phone lines have lit up, Spencer, so I don't know how much more, how many more questions I'm going to get to ask. So uh, let's get right to the callers. Steve is calling in from the Gold Coast. Hey, Steve, you're on with Spencer Critchley and me. Yes, I wanted to echo something that you had alluded to earlier, and that in the way in which you know, because a lot of news is for is driven by bottom line interests, uh, we have developed a system that's in many ways akin to what you see in terms of sports analysis. So on Saturday and Sunday in the fall, you know, people gather together, so-called experts, people who used to play the game, and they have to pick winners in every matchup. You know, there's nobody who can sit there and say, well, you know, I can offer you this analysis and uh, really uh, I'm not going to pick a winner because, you know, I don't think I'm in a position to do so, uh, given the information. That that person would never be asked to come back and and be a part of that panel. And it's the same thing is true with regard to politics. You know, you can tune into the Sunday morning shows. I watch, for instance, a cross section on ABC. Chris Christie is over here. So Donna Brazil is on the other side and there'll be a couple of other people. And so it it looks like it's a matchup. And everybody there has got to offer up a prediction, whereas someone from, say, the scholarly or research community might come in and say, you know what, given the best polling data we have from the most reputable sources, you know, the following are too close to call and given the margin of error and so forth, and I'm not about to do so. Nobody wants to hear that. They want to hear this as if it's uh, some sort of a sporting event, you know, in which you pick a team. And unfortunately, I think it really does detract from uh, from the the message, which should be one of substance and policy analysis. And the people who study this sort of thing can tell you over the last 50 years, political commercials and messaging have gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. No one wants to hear a soliloquy about policy. Instead, you have to be able to say something in a few seconds. And if you can't condense your message into that, then pretty much nobody's interested in hearing it any longer. And I think that, it, that that's a shame. And, and then lastly, I'm wondering what your guest thinks about this, uh, this uh, assertion. On, and, I, and I agree with this, that uh, Donald Trump was an anomaly in 2016. And in 2018, 2020, and now 2022, we're slowly eroding that credibility of that movement, that populist right-wing movement. And, and I think that even the Republicans are starting to move away from that. I know the storm isn't over, but are, have we moved away from the edge of the cliff at least? Ah, good question. Yeah, really uh, great comments and uh, and good questions. Um, and I kind of feel two ways about it. On the one hand, I'm constantly doing whatever I can to call on Democrats to remember how politics, how political persuasion actually works, which is essentially an emotional process. Um, so uh, I I agree with you about the problem we face with the shrinking attention span and the preference for sensation over the information voters need to make informed decisions. And at the same time, I don't think the solution is for Democrats to get wonkier. I think that's why they end up losing elections they should otherwise win, because there's lots and lots of data that shows that most Americans prefer Democratic policies, often by very wide margins. And yet it's so often an utter squeaker to get Uh candidates elected. And I think that gap is in the loss of skills in the ancient art of rhetoric, which is persuasion, you know, and it it relies more on emotion and the poetry of language than it does on the actual facts and logic. Now, at the same time, I do agree. 
Uh, as Neil Postman said in the in the title of his book from back in I think 1984, uh, we're amusing ourselves to death. The whole culture <laughs> has become addicted to entertainment and sports and distraction, and 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 various forms of addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol or addictive social media, addictive entertainment, and. And more and more, I feel like we're being it's becoming normal to act like children who never grow up. And we must we're fretful and impulsive. And if we don't get we want what we want immediately, we're expected to throw a tantrum. And uh, and I don't think we we should succumb to that as the alternative either. And I think it's possible to unite effective rhetoric and substantive policy. And there are examples of people who have done that, like Barack Obama, for example, and um, I think even in the world of punditry, where a lot of it is pretty degraded, I agree, it, it suffers greatly by, by imitating sports coverage. Um, but on the other hand, there are people like, for example, I think uh, Claire McCaskill is really good on MSNBC. I think um, former Bush administration figure um, Matthew Dowd is always worth listening to. He's one of these, you know, sane, compassionate, intelligent Republicans who's revolted by Trump. Uh, David Pluff from the Obama campaign, I think, is just brilliant. And I always stop what I'm doing and listen when he's on. So, you know, there are some some hopeful signs. And, and I think finally, I would say Shakespeare is often a model for everything. <laughs> and, and Shakespeare combined, you know, some of the, the greatest uh, drama ever written with popular entertainment. And uh, so it, this can be done, but it requires recognizing that a human being is the whole thing. It's not just the rational mind. It's not just emotional reactions. It's, it's a synthesis of everything Steve. we are. Thank you so much for the call. Uh, let's go to the phone lines again. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim, you're on with me and Spencer Critchley. Hi, Spencer. Hi, Joan. What I'm concerned about is when Freddy Krueger announces tomorrow and he goes on these physical rallies, how many of the proud boys, they have nothing to lose. They've got relatives in jail doing eight years. I'm sure that they'll show up at all these rallies like maniacs that they are because Freddie has no regard for life for limb. We know that. Uh, we had a pandemic. Uh, he's had an insurrection. He was going to kill my pets. <laughs> he has no regard for human life. But how are we going to contend with a guy running around the country for two years with the psychos uh, armed with teeth? And uh, it's just going to be a, a disaster. I, I'm not making any predictions, but I can certainly envision uh, – there's some horrible things happening at these rallies because uh, he loves these rallies and he won't. Uh, and he has no regard for life. So uh, well, let's uh, that's you, you raise a good point, Jim. I mean, obviously, um, various white supremacist groups have been very attracted for a number of reasons to Donald Trump. But if he does declare that he wants to run again, don't you think Spencer in his own self-interest he would try to play that down, try to minimize it, try to get them not to show up in numbers, maybe? Uh, no, actually, um, I'm not oh. sure he's capable of it. And I think maybe his only path to power now is through violence, you know, at least intimidation. Uh, so he wouldn't see them as somebody that turns other people off. He would see them as his adoring fans. And his only real power base, you know, the most extreme fringe. As thanks a million, Joan. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you, Jim. Sure. Um, appreciate the call. Peel away, you know, as people start to peel away from him, um, 
I think that he's been, you know, increasingly turning towards QAnon, you know, openly, for example, uh, endorsing QAnon when he used to sort of dance around the subject. And he's losing his base of support and Rupert Murdoch's turning against him. I think he'll go wherever uh, he needs to go to try to find some kind of path to power. And I think your caller is right. He's essentially a psychopath or or a sociopath, at least. And uh, he's not capable, I don't think, of thinking about anything but his immediate gratification of his needs. Um, On the more hopeful side of this, uh, I think that one thing we underestimate is how much of morality is simply a matter of social pressure. Um, And what we've seen happening in America over many years now and decades, uh, in my book, I argue, going back to the founding, but we've seen the breakdown of a moral consensus that used to exist. And in the absence of that moral consensus and the loss of faith in institutions and open hostility to institutions, it's like peeling back the cover and seeing what's beneath the the veneer of civilization. And this is an, an area where I think that conservatives, the conservative worldview has something to teach liberals who tend to have a kind of Rousseau-based, romanticized vision of human nature as nothing but benevolent and communal and, and generous until it is subjected to some kind of oppressive system that brings out the selfishness in people. And in fact, I think it's more accurate. I believe human nature is a complex mix of light and dark. And a lot of what keeps civilization going is just the the group pressure of what's considered acceptable. A lot of the awful behavior we've seen among Trump supporters is simply the result of it becoming the norm that it's okay now to express your hatred and resentment and bigotry and all of that, right? The, The opportunity to indulge in cruelty is, you know, the invitation to indulge in cruelty is an invitation that many, many people will gleefully accept. Yeah. Spencer, uh, we so need to we don't need to make all those people go away. We just need to make the majority opinion decency. Again. We just need to make them behave better again. <laughs> Spencer well, and I need to take a quick break. We're going to be back with more of this discussion right after this. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. Need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. On WCPT 820. I'm talking politics and midterms with Spencer Critchley, author of the book Patriots of Two Nations, and also the driving force behind the podcast, Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. We are taking your calls in addition to our own discussion, 773-763-9278. And uh, Spencer Bobby from Indiana is calling to join our conversation. Hey, Bobby, how are you today? Well, fair to Midland. I hope you uh, and Spencer are also uh, reasonably well. Reasonably. Uh, yeah, well, I know for a fact you're far smarter than I am, so uh, maybe you can help me with my problem. From the way I understand it, we basically uh, held the Senate. Yes. We didn't really gain anything, at, at least yet. Yet, not yet. And we still have the uh, Mansion Cinema duo, don't we? Yes, we do. 
Okay. Well, that is why I believe that it's really, and I think it's going to become even more so as time goes on, critical that Warnock returns. Oh, absolutely. Because you know darn well with Mansion and Cinema, they're going to continue to be a problem. And, you know, uh, Bobby, there have been, I've been reading um, rumblings uh, that, oh, you know, what if, what if they become Republicans? You know, that could throw this whole thing into a tizzy. I'm not sure I see Joe Manchin doing that. I think Joe Manchin is who he is. But Spencer, uh, Kirsten Cinema kind of strikes me uh, a little bit like the Donald Trump and Carrie Lakes of the world, where I think she, to, at least to some groups, she becomes what they want her to become uh, because I don't know whether she has presidential aspirations or just thinks that, you know, the corporate and big pharma money is awfully nice to have. But, you know, do you think, Spencer, that there is a real possibility that Kirsten Cinema could be lured to the Republican side? Yeah, I, I am worried about that, actually. Um, I, it's very hard to uh, decode what might be driving her behavior. Some of it looks like it's just big money campaign contributions, given, you know, if you look down those that list of donors, we can't know, of course, but that's a red flag. Some of it just seems to be a, a delight in being, you know, unpredictable, sometimes to the point of trollish. So I'm concerned about that. I agree it's important uh, for Warnock to win so that it's no longer this uh, power sharing agreement as well in the Senate, where all the committees are staffed 50-50 Republicans and Democrats, and that slows everything down. And, you know, it requires the vice president to cast these tiebreakers. And then if we lose one vote, if, you know, Manchin or Cinema or somebody else, then we've got a big problem there. So I agree with all that. I think, the, the you know, the, the good news here, though, it's bad news that it's still so close. And, and the, the question remains, why is it even close when you're running against people who are literally trying to destroy democracy, who are led by a criminal? Um, so that's that's the bad news. But the good news is that it's kind of analogous to Ukraine, you know, Based on everybody's predictions, Russia should have rolled over Ukraine in a few days, you know, captured the capital and set up a puppet regime. And so it's an enormous victory for Ukraine still to be in the fight right now, let alone apparently winning. And similarly, the Democrats should have been crushed in this midterm. Um, and so just to draw roughly even is amounts to an enormous victory. But, of course, for the future, it's it's not enough. Well, Spencer? Mm-hmm. Is uh, is is it cinema in Arizona? Yeah, she yeah. is. Has that governor's race been decided? Um, it hasn't been called yet. Last I saw, Carrie Lake was losing by a slim margin. Okay, if that governorship, yeah, if that governorship goes Democratic and cinema switches to Republican, won't that new governor put a Democrat in that spot? Well, if, Cin if Cinema switches to the Republican Party, she still keeps her seat. Oh, does she? Oh, I see what you mean. No, she, she would have to resign. Uh, she'd have to quit the Senate for the governor to replace her. No, if she switches parties, she continues on as the senator from Arizona, just as a Republican. 
Yeah. By the way, um, I think that there's an interesting perspective to be had from looking at the, you know, what I think was a frankly terrible campaign run by Katie Hobbs, the Democratic candidate who, thank God, appears to be winning. Um, she seemed, you know, to really hate the idea of campaigning for office and did as little of it as possible. <laughs> and we were all freaking out, myself included. Uh, why why wasn't she showing up, you know? Um, but, it, you know, in retrospect, it, it might be an indication that these Trump-backed candidates are so awful that it worked just to stay out of Carrie Lake's way and let her reveal who she is. And it was enough to repel enough independent and moderate Republican voters and mobilize enough Democrats that Katie Hobbs, all she needed to do was stay out of her way. Yeah, it was um, it, by all accounts. Why? Well, I'm not quite sure. I, I heard people say that she just hated campaigning and did as little of it as possible. But by all accounts, she was not a strong campaigner, um, you know, whereas Carrie Lake you know, uh, brought that sort of um, TV charisma with her. Um, so it's, you know, I I don't I like making fun of people for the way they look. But, Spencer, did it bother you that every time Carrie Lake did an interview, it was in soft focus? I, st- I you know, um, once or twice, yeah. I started to think that was kind of creepy and weird. Yes. Yes. Well, it's, it's, that's another thing that I think you can read quite a lot into about the state of our politics and the state of our culture. And I think that might have backfired as well, too, because everybody is just swimming in media all day long. And the average person has become quite sophisticated about how media works, even, you know, just through using Instagram filters and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is it's weirdly off putting. And I think, you know, people are reluctant to comment on a, a woman's appearance. But when she's obviously using it as a political tool, I think it's perfectly fair game. She's, we're not commenting on whether she's attractive or not. We're saying she's using well, it. Well, and, you know, if it had happened uh, once okay. in a while, um, you know, then you just attribute it to, you know, whatever. But it was like every time it made me uneasy. I don't know why. No, it's the artificiality. So, our, you know, is this an AI fake? Is this a deep fake or is this the real person? And, and I, I'm kind of serious. There's, the distinction is starting to blur, you know, right? I mean, in, mm-hmm. in terms of we were talking just a little while ago about Carrie Lake completely reinventing herself from a Obama supporter not too long ago. Yeah. So you have to ask yourself, does she have character or just some sort of virtual character, some sort of mm-hmm. AI-driven character, you know, metaphorically speaking? And similarly with the way she presents herself. Ivanka Trump, Trump did the same thing with her January 6th committee testimony with his bizarre use of really heavy-handed soft-focus filtering, and people were commenting on it. Um, and I think that there's a there's – I can't know this, but I would think there'd be – some number of voters who are put off by that because they do recognize they're being manipulated and, and they're yeah. so naive about media that they don't see it happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it does. It gives you thank you for articulating the creepiness that I've been feeling for a while. And I and I yeah, and I, a, I, I you know, there, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say I used to do a lot of work in computer animation and stuff in uh, Silicon Valley. Um, and part of my career uh, at a series of internet startups and stuff. Um, and there's this phrase from animation called the uncanny valley you may have heard. And it's, it's, it's this zone you get into between something that's obviously a cartoon like Bugs Bunny and, and then completely realistic 
simulation of reality. And between those two is this uncanny valley where it's just realistic enough to be creepy, and it doesn't work. Um, there's a Tom Hanks animation about the this, what's called the, the Polar Express or this something or other to do with Snow Express, where it fell into the uncanny valley and people felt it didn't succeed well. Because of that, it was too realistic, but not realistic enough. And I think Carrie Lake and Ivanka Trump are both in the uncanny valley. Yeah, yes, in more ways than one. Uh, Spencer, we need to take another break. Spencer Critchley and I will be right back after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. You're listening to WCPT820 because facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Spencer Critchley, who uh, has written a book called Patriots of Two Nations, which talks about the deep differences between the left and the right and the conservatives and the liberals in a in a way that you probably won't have read about before. And he does a podcast, Dastardly Cleverness in the Service of Good. You know, I was looking at some of the people, Spencer, that you've interviewed for this podcast, and I kind of thought, well, maybe because of my own strange brain, I thought, well, this is going to be like all politics all the time. But you really, this is very, it's a very wide-ranging podcast that you've got here. What is it you're trying to get at with these discussions you have in your podcast? Yeah, well, I'm glad you noticed that. It's a lot more about politics um, since the country's been going through this existential crisis with Trumpism. Um, but the point of it is, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I started this company called Boots Road Group some years back to consult with nonprofits and socially responsible corporations and um political campaigns we believed in. And the idea was to use the techniques normally used in consumer marketing to sell consumer products like sneakers and potato chips and music and movie tickets and all of that, but use it to try to help people trying to do good in the world have more of an impact. Because I saw the need, because a lot of them are frankly not all that great Uh uh, communicating. And so that was the idea. And when we started the podcast, we were focusing on all kinds of people who were just who were trying to make the world better and who were being effective at it. Those were the kinds of people who were most interested. They weren't just talking theoretically. They're actually getting things done, like reducing gang violence, um, you know, or improving health care and, and changing the way their city worked. Um, as I say, in recent years, I've been focusing more and more on politics just because I think it's a, an absolute existential crisis. But if people do go to Apple Podcasts or any of the podcasts, um, providers or dastardlycleverness.com, they can see a list of some of the people we've talked to, and you'll see that we spoke with a, a Russia expert named, named Jade McGlynn recently, who was fascinating on how Putin manipulates history, and this is kind of a longstanding inheritance in the Soviet system, to try to shape reality in the service of his imperialist ambitions. Fascinating conversation. Uh, or uh, Dr. Rose Kumar, who's a very interesting mix of um, Western science and uh, a much more holistic sort of whole person approach to medicine. She's got a very distinguished traditional medical education, and yet she also 
um, I think has some really uh, helpful solutions to offer in how our incre- increasingly sort of corporatized, industrialized, alienating healthcare system could be reformed and made more humanistic and more effective. Or, uh, oh gosh, I spoke with um, Sam Canonies recently, who's an expert on the opioid crisis. He really helped to break the story about Purdue Pharmaceutical and the horrible devastation of opioids. And mm-hmm. talked about his recent book about fentanyl. He's fascinating and a, a great and deeply compassionate uh, thinker on this subject. Or uh, um, I spoke with the author of a book who, that influenced me a lot about um, learning. It was called Learning from the Germans. This was a year or two ago. And I think that brings um, history and our current political situation together. Yes. There's a lot we can, we can um, Germany went through. Yes, and it compares um, Germany with a post, was it post-Civil War America? Right. She, that, exactly right. She says that um, Germany's experience trying to face what it had done during World War II and and um, work through it. There's a long German word that I had to practice saying for that for that interview. Can you remember <laughs> it? Remember it. In the short time we have remaining, I'll see if I can dredge it up. Um, but they went through a decades-long process of, first of all, acknowledging what they had done because they tried to bury it and reinvent it, which is what we did after the Civil War. We invented, or the you know the Civil War states invented the myth of the lost cause, you know, and the noble defense in the war against the war of northern aggression, as they called it, completely, you know, sublimating slavery and the horrors of what they had done. And you know, part of her argument is that unlike the Germans, we have never faced what happened in our history, the enormous crime of slavery and then the the war that, you know, the revolutionary war that was fought to defend slavery. And instead, we buried it and we're still paying the price for that. Mm. And yeah, we're still trying to bury it. You know, all these efforts yeah. by um, groups that say that kids shouldn't be taught anything that makes them feel bad or feel uncomfortable. Um, so therefore, we yeah. can't teach them about slavery. And unfortunately, I think that, again, this gets back to people on the left having a difficulty with persuasion and effective communication. That's such an important topic, and I deeply believe we need to be teaching the truth about history. And yet, it, it's, this conversation has too often been hijacked by ideologues on the left who are, who are imposing a whole bunch of their particular favorite ideological program on the topic, and they want you to accept the whole sort of critical theory approach to teaching race. And, you know, I think you're perfectly free to accept that ideology, of course, but I don't think it should be a requirement. And and the language is so alienating that it scares off people who think, oh, my God, this sounds like Marxism. And and frankly, the roots of it are in Marxism. Um, (laughs) Or if they don't recognize it as Marxism, they they still find it alienating and, and frightening who might be open to an honest discussion about a crucially important topic that we really must face. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's something that I think, you know, the right, of course, wants to make it go away because they don't come out of that conversation looking too good. Um, and unfortunately, on the left, I think that liberals need to stand up for inclusiveness and, and reject the idea that this has to be packaged within 
with this ideological payload, which, as I say, you know, if you're into critical theory, fine. Um, we could debate that, but of course you have the right to see it that way. I just don't think people need to be required to look at everything uh, within that framework. Well, if you are somebody who enjoys a good podcast, I think you should add this one to your list. I know it's on Apple Podcasts. I assume it's carried pretty much anywhere podcasts are available, Spencer? That's right. It should. It's pretty much everywhere, yeah. And how's that new book coming? You got that thing coming yet? It keeps getting bigger. (laughs) I need to split it into a few books. Yes. We don't need a door stopper. Give give us two volumes. Get the first one out. Maybe that's what I should do. Maybe that's what I should do. What was it? How many volumes about the the life of uh, LBJ? uh, Did they publish that one? Uh, You know, I mean, uh, it was yes. That was, um, come Maybe on. I should take the Charles Dickens. I should go back to the Charles Dickens approach and just start publishing chapters. That's a great idea. And Serialize it. Book later. Yeah. yeah. Well, whatever you decide to do, you let us know because um, we want to um, we want to be sure that we get a chance to read it. Um, thank you so much, Spencer. It is always a pleasure. What do you, you have any special plans for Thanksgiving? Oh, it's it's this time. It's just going to be my wife, uh, Lila, and me, and our our new little dog, Mia. Um, oh, just be the three of us this time. Um, last year we had a bigger a bigger Thanksgiving with you know more of the extended family with our son and his wife and their children, uh, which was wonderful. Uh, but this year it, it'll just be the three of us, including the little dog. How about you? Well. Um, oh, no, we're actually, for the first time in pretty much forever, we are hosting and cooking. It's not going to be a, a real big group. I think there are, we're looking at 15. So, you know, if you and the wife and the little dog want to get in the car and drive over, okay. you're more than welcome to. I'm tempted to do it. I love Chicago, and it would be great to see you in person. It would be. It would be nice. It would be nice. Uh, to to meet in person in 3D as opposed to just yeah. audio airwaves. Anyway, thank you so much. Have a great Thanksgiving. Um, if you do decide to come to Chicago, I'll send you my address. And we got plenty of food. Thanks so much, Joan. You're very welcome. To you and to everybody listening. Yeah, thanks. Um, sp- oh, speaking of Thanksgiving, I know I'm running out of time because the computer's ready to cut me off. But um, this Friday, Shelly Young from the Chopping Block, we're going to do um, call in or text me with any of your Thanksgiving food questions. I'm going to start saving the texts as they come in. The same number that you can call in, you can text in 773-763-9278. Turkey Day questions, cooking your meal, whatever you got, we're going to hit Shelly with it on Friday. That's it for me. I will see you tomorrow at 2 p.m. Pare Vasquez is up next. Have a great evening. Good night.